So on April 25th, 2004, a tired musician came home to his Los Angeles house after a late night gigging. And in his tiredness, he left his instrument sitting on the front porch, locked the door, and went to bed. A camera across the street caught a man on a bicycle at 6.30 the next morning, stealing the instrument, and then promptly crashing his bike into a bunch of garbage cans. You see, it's difficult to ride, I can tell you from firsthand experience, it's difficult to ride on a bicycle with a cello. So having broken the cello into the garbage cans, the man stashed it in its case up next to a dumpster. And a couple of days later, a woman was driving to her job as a nurse and saw it, pulled over, threw it in the back of her car, and when she got home, she asked her boyfriend, who's a carpenter, a cabinet maker, if he could repair it for her, and if he couldn't, to then cut it open and then use it as like a cool CD case. And um, he put it, they put it in, in her guest room and then promptly didn't get to it right away. About another week later, they were at a friend's house and saw on the news that this famous cello had been stolen. And they started to realize that maybe that could be the cello. And they looked inside the F-hole and they saw a faint number stamped from the 1600s. This was one of 60 cellos made by Stradivari, and it was worth then $3.5 million. It was on loan to Peter Stump, who's the first chair in the cello department of the LA Symphonic um, Orchestra, and Philharmonic Orchestra, and um, he, he just left it out there. Now, the amazing thing is I looked on Wikipedia now, it's been repaired, and it's now worth $9 million, right? So this is unbelievable. And, and the thing about it is, the reason I bring it up, is it is possible to have something in your possession of huge value and completely underappreciate it, not even be aware of what you've got. It's awesome that it was not cut into a CD case. It's from the 1600s. It's amazing. The reason I open with that story is because today I'm going to talk about the Holy Eucharist. And I think for most of us, and I'll include myself in that, We have something of value that we undervalue in the sacraments. The Lord's Supper, Holy Communion, Eucharist are different words for one of only two sacraments that our Lord himself instituted for his church. The Eucharist is a real gift from God to us, and we undervalue it. I think we undervalue it for a a number of reasons. I'll highlight two. One is that we're dealing in the realm of mystery here. And for many of us, if you're sort of a pragmatic person, you're kind of a, you know, the Blues Brothers, just the facts, ma'am, kind of like, does it work or not? And not getting into the mystery itself. And people just tend, some of us just want to be really practical about it. St. John Chrysostom, who was one of the early church fathers, um, had a statement. He said, when the question of how enters in, usually unbelief comes with it. The minute we start asking, how does it work? we start to lose faith. And some terrible doctrines about this sacrament have developed because people are trying to parse it out, to dissect it, to pull it apart. And when you're dealing with things of mystery, you can't do that. If you dissect a human, you won't find the soul. If you try to understand how beauty works and why certain things in nature are beautiful and other things aren't, even though it's somewhat objectively beautiful, you can't figure it out. You just have to embrace it as a mysterious thing. There are a number of things in life that we do that with. But if you skew away from the mystery and just try to take it as a practical thing, you miss out on something really great. 
Now, the other side of that pendulum is some people are so into it that they push it all the way to magic. And that happens and does great damage as well. So I want us this morning, as we think about this sacrament that the Lord has given us, I want us to be in a place where we're okay with mystery, with the real presence of Christ in the bread and the wine, and how that is a means of grace and how it can nourish us. So mystery is one of the reasons we undervalue it. Another reason is the, the regularity with which in this church we partake. Every Sunday we do the same thing. We have communion every week, and instead of a holy thing, it can become a commonplace thing, and we can take it for granted. I wonder if, like me, you've ever found yourself midweek eating a particularly unwholesome lunch of something fried and full of fat, and maybe even an unholy company with people that are not believers, and you find yourself thinking, oh, just a few days ago, I was eating holy food with God's people, the saints, and, and felt that contrast. There is something so special and different about communion that it's sacred. It is holy. And yet, because we do it every week, there's a temptation for us to, to take it just for granted. Just do it out of habit, not even think about it. It's what we do. And so we just go through the motions. And we miss out when that happens. So my goal this morning is twofold. One, I would like you to embrace this sacrament with intentionality, to be thinking through what you are doing as you're doing it. Be intentional. Um, some of the meanings of it I will share with you now, and then as you come to the Lord's Supper, you can call those up to your memory. I mean, remembrance is what this is about, and then you will experience something different. I'm telling you, right here at this rail, the, the distance between heaven and earth is thin the spiritual and physical meet in a, in a weird and mysterious way. So I want you to embrace it, and then I want you to cherish it as a real gift. It is a gift, and I want you to cherish it and love it as a gift that the Lord has given us. Now to the Word. Uh, my text this morning is from John chapter 6. Um, we only read verses 47 to 58, but it's a much lengthier discourse, and I really want to encourage you to read the whole thing. Pick up all that Jesus teaches in here on your own time. Read through chapter 6. This is the first of seven I am statements in John's gospel. You know, when Moses asked God what his name was, he said, I am that I am. I am. That's my name. And Jesus is making a very clear, seven times in John's gospel, very clear reference to divinity. He's basically saying, I am God. And to the Greek reader, this would be super obvious in the grammar, because the, the I is repeated. In Greek, it's ego, a me, and he's saying, I, I am. You wouldn't say the, the pronoun, you'd just say, I am. It would be included in the conjugation of the verb. I, I am the bread of life. People right there would have recognized he's claiming to be God. He does this seven times in this gospel, and this is the first one. And in this section, chapter 6, Four different times he uses that I am construction. I am the bread of life. I am the bread that came down from heaven. I am the bread of life. He says it over and over again here, probably because he wants us to, to catch on to how important this is. Now, here's the context, and I love this, this sequence of things that God does. So, first of all, all the people have followed him out into the wilderness by the Sea of Galilee. He's been teaching them for a long time, and they're hungry, and they're far from any food. And so he feeds them miraculously. 5,000 people, he feeds them, has them sit down. He multiplies some bread and fish. You know the story. Hands it out. Twelve baskets are left with the overflow. The people 
I don't know how long it took for them to start to figure this out, but the people pretty quickly recognized, wait a minute, this is impossible. Where is he getting all this food? Even if he had 12 baskets full of food, groups of 50 and 100 at a time are going to exhaust that quickly. Wait, this is a miracle. And they start to, it, it tells us that they want to make him king. On this Christ the King Sunday, where we recognize him as the king, they wanted to make him king before the crown of the thorns, before the cross. They wanted to take him by force and say, you're our king. So you know what he does? He sends his disciples across the lake on a boat, on their boats. And he goes walking in front of the people's view and goes up into the woods and climbs the mountain by himself. And he hides in the woods and prays all night. And while everybody's asleep and the disciples are having trouble because of the wind buffeting them, they can't make it across, he walks on the water out to the boat and then helps them get to Capernaum on the other side, kind of on that north shore. They kind of go across four or five miles across the Sea of Galilee. In the morning, the people recognize he's not here. He's snuck out. The boats are gone, so they go looking for him. And they all walk around and they find him in Capernaum. And then this dialogue happens where they start asking him questions. Where are you? Where did you go? When did you, how did you get here? They're asking the wrong questions. And he steers them to the right questions. He says, you're looking for food because you ate the bread. Don't look for food that wears out. Look for the eternal life, the kind of food that will last forever. He starts to take them into a spiritual teaching from a physical thing. Now, they made this connection. They understood that Moses fed the people, actually God fed the people through Moses in the wilderness with manna. It was that like flaky bread stuff that God brought every morning on the dew. It was on the ground and they would eat it every day and then he'd bring more the next day. And they made that connection. They, they realized that just like Moses brought, God brought the manna for the Israelites, Jesus in the wilderness has fed these people. But he takes it two steps further in his teaching. First of all, he takes it and says, it's not, it's not just connection to the manna. This is connection to the cross that he's going to give his life, his physical body as the bread of life. And then he takes it to the place of the sacrament. This is going to be Eucharist, Holy Communion. And he's pointing ahead to something that they couldn't possibly understand. They certainly didn't get the cross because it hadn't happened yet. And they didn't even have the Lord's Supper instituted yet because that happens in John 13 when he washes their feet and he gives them the Last Supper. But this was written more for our sake. And it was written for people after all this had happened to help understand what is the good news. Now, let me quickly give you three supports from this text as to why I think it's pointing to communion as well as the cross. First, bread and manna and his body make a good connection. You could say you have to eat my body, and that's a figurative eating, not a real, like, chewing kind of eating. But why would you include blood? Why would he say you have to eat my body and drink my blood? To say that, well, one, it's, it's unholy for Jewish people to drink blood. It was against the law. That's kind of weird. And you wouldn't need it to complete the metaphor. All you need is to say, just like you ate the manna, eat my flesh. But he includes drink my blood, which would point to the communion wine. Second reason is, in verse 23, it says, other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. John inserts that little given thanks. That Greek word is Eucharist, from Eucharisto. He had given thanks. Remember in the Last Supper, after supper, he took the bread and he broke it and he said, take and eat. 
Those words became very important to the Eucharistic community of the early church. As John is writing this, he's, he's reminding them. Remember when he took the bread, he broke it, and then he fed the 5,000? Just like at the Last Supper, he broke the bread and had given thanks. That He includes that. And then thirdly, in verse 56 that we did read this morning, it says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Now, throughout the whole text, the word he used there for eating was the one that could be taken figuratively. Here, he uses the word trogo, which means to press with the teeth, to munch. It doesn't mean, it's never taken figuratively. It's always meant to actually eat something like eat, right? Whoever munches on my flesh is how that would come across, which would be weird if he's just trying to make a spiritual teaching and there's no physicality to it. So those three things, and there's others, but that's enough for us, say that here he's pointing to not just the cross, but also the table. He's helping us understand something important. Now, if you jump all the way back to Genesis 1, man is created and presented into the garden as a hungry being. In Genesis 1, 20, 29, he, God puts Adam and Eve in the garden, and he says, I give you all of the plants as food. See, they're hungry. They need to eat. We are created as hungry beings. And we were supposed to receive that food and give thanks to God for it. It was all, all meals were meant to be Eucharist, which is the word thanks. We were meant to be pointing everything back to God and worshiping him. But what happened was we took our sights off of God and we began to worship the things. We wanted just the earth, not the Lord of the earth. And that pretty much describes all of our problems, is that we're not giving thanks back to God. We're not doing everything to God's glory and for his glory. So we're tempted in this life to feed on the wrong food. What are you feeding on is a helpful question as you think about this. Now, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, is about remembrance. And this morning, we're going to recognize some kids and their families that have gone through the communion class, and maybe parents, maybe that were in the class, you'll remember the three meanings that we pulled out. Communion can have meaning on a number of levels. There's just three that I want to highlight here, which I did in the class as well. A past, a present, and a future. So let's start with the past. The past is that on that cross, Jesus, once for all time, was broken. His body was broken, and he died for our sins. And most of us, I think, get that. The Eucharistic prayer is super clear. I think we remember how did he, how did his body, how was his body given? It was given by dying physically on a cross. He really died and went to a grave. He died so that you and I could live. He died for the life of the world. And if you think about how food works, I don't know what you ate for breakfast. I'm guessing you had a cup of coffee. The coffee bean had to die for you to get the cup of coffee. It grew on a tree and then it was plucked off and burned in a roaster and then crushed. I, I, know that's, I know this is really like, I don't know, tactile, but this is how it works. The, the lettuce in your salad grew and then it was ripped out of the ground and chopped up and then you ate it. Something dies, so something lives. And that happens spiritually as well. Jesus dies so that you can be made new. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. You are made new. You must be born again. So, as we come to the Lord's table, we remember this has happened. Christ died for our sins on that cross to give us new life. There's also a present component. 
not only was his body broken, but now we belong. We belong to a new body, which is the church, the people of God. And so uh, we come forward and we kneel, and I hope at times you're not just being polite and kind of staying like this as you receive, but occasionally you look around and you recognize, I'm part of this thing that's the church. This is the spiritual family I belong to. And I know, especially on a week like this where we've had Thanksgiving and our, our biological families have oftentimes come together and we recognize strains there and not everybody agrees with what we think about God and what is true and not everyone is a Christian and it's painful. Here in this family, it's an eternal family. These relationships are forever and you have a place of belonging. Even if you don't fit anywhere else in the world, you fit here. That's what the communion is signifying. You belong at this table because you belong to the Lord of the table. So there's a present component here. <clears throat> it's something that we really need to give thanks for. In this teaching, Jesus goes on and, and he says, I've come down from heaven and don't grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. You know, there's a real mystery in how that works. God's sovereignty and human responsibility. But the fact that you are hungry for the Lord and that you've come to Him is something to be thankful for. He has done that. It was His grace at work in your life. And again, don't ask how. Don't ask why someone else hasn't done it yet. Don't ask, don't ask that question. Just be thankful. You belong. Come to His table and recognize, I belong here because God has invited me. He's adopted me into His family and therefore I have a seat at His table. So take a good look around at the family of God and take real pride in that ownership. I belong here. And then there's a future component. There's a banquet. So that his body was broken. I'm trying to alliterate this for you. Broken, belong, banquet. Past, present, future. There's a banquet coming. And there's a really powerful uh, thing about this. Um, verse 54, he's talking about a future resurrection. He says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, to get a real sense of that, you have to kind of jump over to Revelation 19 and, and look at um, verse 6 and following. I'm just going to read this to you because it's so powerful. Now, this is a picture after a ton of judgment has happened. A, a lot of things have been dealt with. There's only two more chapters in, in the entire Bible, and the second from the last chapter says this, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. You know who that multitude was, right? Those that have eaten at his table will be raised on this last day. Great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride, has, that's you, has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. This is a pale comparison to something that is so brilliant and amazing that I, I, words don't really, they're not adequate to describe it. This is what's coming though. There's a future banquet, a marriage supper of the Lamb. When we come to the Lord's table, we are being reminded of that as well. 
there's a future thing where all of his people will come. It'll be an incredible feast. Now, I need to insert a word of caution here because the scriptures do that about how to receive communion, how to prepare yourself for this sacrament, how to be ready for it. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians says some things to the church there because their, their Lord's Supper was not working like Jesus intended. He says, one of you gets drunk, another goes hungry. Don't you have houses to eat in? Eat at home and then come to the church for the Lord's Supper. And he, and he gives some instructions. He says, um, let me find it here. Let, in verse 20, this is 1 Corinthians uh, 11, verse 28. He says, let a person examine himself then, and so uh, eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Discerning the body means this. Look around at the relationships. Are you in unforgiveness? Is there some business you have to attend to in those relationships first? If so, don't come to the Lord's Supper. Go and do as much as it lies within you. Do what you can to be reconciled to that person and then come to the Lord's Supper. Do some self-examination first. Are you living in repentance? Are you openly sinning? And you don't have any intention of changing that. This supper will serve as a judgment against that. So I want to caution you. Do self-examination, live in forgiveness, and then come to the supper. Now, um, <clears throat> the, the definition from the catechism of a sacrament is an outward and physical sign of an inward and spiritual grace. This is a way that the Lord feeds us and empowers us to go and live the kind of life of repentance and forgiveness and works of service. It is spiritual nourishment. And so when we come, we are, we are doing something simple on the outside, but something is happening within us. And if I try and go any further than that to describe it, I'm going to get into to trouble because I'm, I'm starting to ask the how does it work question. Don't ask the how does it work, just recognize that it does. And I can, I can point to experiences that I know it works, and this is a great week for it, because I missed church last Sunday. I was not here, as you probably all know, if you were here. And I, was, I had a good excuse. I was out of state. I was at the marching band thing for my daughter in the Tampa Dome, and it went till way late at night, whatever, all my excuses. But I'll tell you this, I felt the lack all week. I felt the void. I, I'm in the realm of mystery here. Something was missing. And I'm glad to be back. I'm glad to be in God's house with God's people at his table because it feeds and nourishes me. Now, I hope that by faith, it will do the same to you, that it will connect you to him and it will nourish you so that you can live this life of discipleship. You're hungry. Be fed with the right thing. Let's pray. Lord, you have given us such a gift I pray that as each one of us comes to your table today, the weight and significance of this mysterious sacrament would nourish us and encourage us and inspire us. Lord, heal your people at your table. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.